I'm Bob Dickey, and welcome to another episode of Taking the Leap Podcast. My guest today is my close friend, Grant Johnson. Grant is a classmate of mine, and I greatly respect how he intentionally lives life. He is one of the nicest people you could ever meet and has had an incredibly successful career, so I was eager to have him on the show. He's a graduate of Brown University and is finishing an executive education program at Harvard Business School, where he's been in a leadership position for the past few years. He is a managing director of Benevolent Capital, a private equity firm investing in early stage growth companies, which include the Aura Ring, Best Day Brewing, and professional soccer, just to name a few. This was a fascinating discussion on his career, how his firm is vastly different than his competitors, and how to have a successful career. He also spoke about what he is teaching his daughters about life and why he left Greenwich, Connecticut and life in New York City for life in Chattanooga, Tennessee. In my haste and excitement to start the conversation, I failed to hit the record button on the podcast equipment. So the first half of this interview is audio that was recorded via Zoom until the mics came on. Sorry for the rookie mistake, but you'll see why I was excited to have him on the show. So let's jump right in. Well, Grant, I've been waiting for this opportunity for quite some time. Oh my gosh, I'm super excited to chat with you. Now, I chat with you on a pretty regular basis, but being able to have you on uh, the podcast and be able to ask you some questions and get to your information and knowledge out there for my friends and family to be able to hear from you, it's uh, quite a pleasure and quite an honor. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, I want to dive in um, maybe right from the top. You know, you have a very impressive background. Uh, you and your twin brother both graduated from Brown University and uh, also attended Harvard Business School. And you find yourself as the managing director right now, a very interesting economy, but you're the managing director. And I'd love for you to give me a little insight into why you chose your current career path, what drew you to it. What interested you about it? And um, maybe like for my daughters, right? So what's the difference between uh, private equity and venture capital? Because I know you you get involved in a lot of investing in companies and scaling companies. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the really cool and exciting projects that you're working into. But I'd, I'd like to kind of go back to 18 or 19-year-old Grant and understand you know, why you were kind of drawn into this particular career path. Sure, absolutely. So, you know, as you mentioned, my brother and I, we were fortunate we went to Brown University, uh, which we loved, and then graduated in the fall of 90 or 92, spring of 92. But interesting enough, uh, when we graduated, we did not have jobs like a lot of our friends of ours that we were with. And um, I actually view that uh, dynamic and that scenario as one of the best things that ever happened because interesting enough most of our friends that did have those you know New York Wall Street jobs or consulting gigs um they were miserable and didn't really enjoy it my brother and I ended up moving out to San Francisco we had a very good friend of the family out there he said look come out here and uh you know see what happens and so we did my brother Brett got a job uh, working at a private equity firm that was acquiring cable companies um rolling up cable companies I actually, interesting enough, was uh, on, his, on his couch for a few months, uh, you know, just trying to get a job. And I ended up landing at a firm called Montgomery Securities, which um, ultimately got acquired by Bank of America. But back in the day, it was a boutique investment banking firm. 
And I was just fortunate to get hired into this program. It was in what's called an institutional equity sales program. Uh, so I'm helping to sell IPOs and stocks to major hedge funds, pension plans, endowments, institutional customers. And really just felt fortunate to get into that training program. Um, ironically, or enough, I was the, the first non-MBA hired into that training program. Um, meaning that until I got hired, um, you had to have an MBA to to even be considered for the job. Not that you needed an MBA to do the job, but they used that as a way to just weed out candidates. Um, Prerequisite. Yep. Yeah. And I got I befriended one of the heads of the firm, a guy named Craig Johnson, no relationship, um, but he just took a liking to me and kind of made it happen. And so that's another thing I try and tell my uh, nieces and nephews. Sometimes it's about timing. Mm -hmm. You know, I was felt like we were lucky not actually in hindsight having the so-called job right out of school um, so that it enabled us to move out to a place like San Francisco and really try to figure things out. And then also uh, one of the most valuable books I've listened to this year is called Who Not How. And mm -hmm. oftentimes uh, it you know might end up being who you know um, more than anything else. And so to go to your question about private equity versus venture capital and today where I focus. So I still work in finance and banking. So to your point about RHK Capital, I have all my securities licenses uh, that you need in order to raise capital for companies. Okay. You need a licensed uh, banker. Okay. And it's you know rigorous process, series 7, 79, 63, 24, all these numbers that associate with what you are able to do. Um, and they certainly don't make it fun or easy, but it's really important to have those credentials. Okay. Um, in the meantime, to distinguish, you know, between the two dynamics, venture capital really is early stage, you know, seed startup financing, um, you know, things that will help a company get off the ground. Whereas private equity is really considered to be later stage companies that are um, ideally you're most likely cash flow positive. They can stand mm -hmm. on their own, um, but they also maybe need to grow into new markets or into new categories. Um, so it really kind of depends where you are in your life cycle between early venture capital or later private equity. And I focus in, in you know, both areas. Well, that's very interesting. Now, it's kind of going back to double click on the fact that you were the first person without an MBA to get hired into this firm. I'd like to understand that a little bit better and maybe this this would be you know great education for my kids what, what do you think um stood out for you for you to be that first person right it was it was it a personal relationship that you had developed with somebody a friendship and you're like hey we're going to take a, a risk on this guy we like what he sees was it your work ethic what, what did you display where someone's like you know what these prerequisites don't matter for grant we want this guy on our team yeah. So I think it was a variety of factors. So one of the individuals that I had to interview with and the way the program worked is that if you get hired into the program, you were called a Sherpa. The program was called the Sherpa program, which Sherpas, if you're not familiar, are the individuals that help the uh, renowned climbers get to the top of Everest. The Sherpas are the ones that do a lot of the heavy lifting, but they don't get much credit for it. So that was the name of this program is that you get hired into this program. You do a lot of the heavy lifting for the senior salespeople. They get a lot of the credit for it, um, but you you learn the ropes. Uh, so that was the nature of, of the program. Now, when I was interviewing for it with an individual who became a dear friend and mentor of mine, uh, 
the interesting thing during the interview, he asked me a question and that actually, and I remember it was, um, what's the difference between depreciation and amortization? Now, interesting enough, when he asked that question, he was actually expecting that I didn't know the answer. Mm-hmm. And the, the test in, in that moment is that if you don't know the answer, actually admit it, say, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. But most people in that type of a pressure cooker interview scenario will just kind of make something up. Mm-hmm. Um, as I mentioned, I actually did know the answer. Um, depreciation is something for a physical asset, whereas amortization is something for a non-physical asset, like a loan. Mm-hmm. Um, but he pointed out, you know, that one of the things about any job or responsibility is when you don't know, have the humility and candor to actually say you don't know, especially when you're selling uh, a securities, a product, a licensed product. If you try to make it up, you could get into a lot of trouble. Um, so it was a it was a great teaching moment. Mm-hmm. I think he um, just talked to me in, in many ways. Um, we just had a real affection uh, and great kinship right from the get-go. And I was fortunate at that point in my life and my, you know, you know, early career to have such a great mentor like, like Steve mm-hmm. Kotler, like this individual in my life. So basically they were uh, weeding out early on, or at least deciphering a person who had uh, innate character and honesty as part of their DNA. And you, you were able to display that because that's such an important aspect of the, the jobs that you're going to be in. Yes. I think, you know, one of the things I also believe and point out again to my nieces and nephews, as far as the, the, the job world mm-hmm. is, you know, when you're getting hired out of school, out of college, they're really not expecting you to know much, right? This idea that you should have all this great experience, I just think is not valid. Um, Because the truth is, wherever you're getting hired into, it doesn't matter what it is. The military, as an example, with with your background, you know, they're not expecting you to know that stuff. That's the whole point, Right. right? So I oftentimes feel like having amazing experiences, life experiences like travel, for example, before you get to any type of job or, or you know, situation, they're going to be training you as to what you need to do and how you need to do it. Um, the most important thing you probably could have, in my opinion, is good good people skills, good interpersonal skills, the ability to work with a team, mm-hmm. to get along with others. Uh, you know, I think that's one, one of the dynamics that... Um, is important and valuable no matter where you are in life. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because I've highlighted that not only to my own children, but also the people within our company, just how important soft skills or the people skills really are to uh, have success in, in life, uh, in your career. And it's an area where a lot of times in, in whether it's undergraduate or graduate programs, there's not like classes that sit there and be like, hey, this is a, a people skills class. Here's how to win friends and influence people. Here's how to have emotional intelligence. These are a lot of times things that you almost have to learn on your own and through life. Uh, there, there was never a class at Harvard where you that you and I went through like, hey, let's talk about people skills. Um, so where did you pick that up? Because, I mean, there's obviously certainly some people are naturally gifted with a, a charismatic personality. But more often than not, that doesn't get you in the door, right? More often than not, people who have honed really good communication and people skills have learned that. And I'd like to know, how how did you learn it? And how do you help people that you're managing and leading in your your firms? You know, how do you help them develop those skills? Yeah, you know, I'm fortunate that uh, my father is very charismatic, personable, uh, you know, 
one of these individuals that what you see is what you get really um, always has a smile, great disposition, um, you know, an optimist. And I, I, I believe I've kind of inherited that um, genetically and, um, and just watching him as I was growing up and seeing his resilience more than anything. And, and, you know, I like to just describe that, you know, it doesn't mean that you're, um, uh, you know, you're myopic or, you know, always wearing rose colored glasses as it were. In fact, the opposite. It's the ability to get knocked down and get back up on your feet. And, you know, I like to tell um, my older daughter, who's seven, a story about one of the greatest lessons in my life was actually at boarding school. I was captain of the crew team, the rowing team, and it was my senior year. And I had been in the first boat, you know, the year before, uh, which was quite an honor. And I was competing against my other co-captain for this one seat in the first boat again. And I had beaten him out early on in the season for it. I was very happy about that. And then uh, our coach uh, decided you know, to race us again, because basically what was happening was my co-captain, who's a dear friend of mine, he was in the second boat and he was a four-year senior and he just really was upset and and um, had a bad attitude about being in the second boat, you know, now that he was a senior. So he raced us again and raced us again and raced us again. And, you know, everybody that kind of was part of it said it was effectively a dead heat um, between us. But what the coach decided was, you know what, I'm going to put Grant in that second boat and I'm going to put Ned up in that first boat. And I have to tell you, Bob, it was one of the biggest blows to my ego imaginable. Mm -hmm. I went back to my dorm room. I was, you know, in tears. I didn't want to let anybody see me crying over it. Mm -hmm. But when I got on that phone with my father and I told him what happened, you know, I was devastated. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was thinking, oh, and I, all I was thinking about was how everybody else was looking at me and going to feel about it and what it meant, you know, mm -hmm. as far as my identity. And my dad said to me, well, what are you going to do about it? And I said, well, I'm going to make that second boat the best boat possible. Mm -hmm. uh, and I did. And I, you know, I got there to practice with the second boat and they were pretty demoralized and said, look, guys, enough's enough. Like, we're going to start focusing on being the best boat possible mm -hmm. and having a great attitude. And we, you know, had an amazing season. We didn't lose a race for the rest of the year. Uh, truly, uh, sincerely, I wouldn't have traded being in that second boat with that group of guys um, to go back in the first boat because of how valuable and incredible a moment it was in my life. So point of that long-winded story is what I tell you know my daughter is look, sometimes out of the bad comes the great. Mm -hmm. And it was in that, you know, really kind of hurtful moment that I had to make a decision about who I was or who I felt I was and what was really valuable and important to me. And what the truth was is it was about, you know, teamwork and camaraderie and you know, dusting yourself off, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. And so now when I think of things that have happened to me in my life since then, I still come back to that moment of, um, you know, loss, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But then in hindsight, I look at it and say, well, it's one of the greatest things that ever happened to me. And so, you know, so much of life isn't about things going up and to the right. I like to say, you know, like that it's always going to be good. It's, you know, what you really, how you really learn who you are as an individual is when things go wrong. When things mm -hmm. don't turn out your way, when you had a goal or a target and you miss it right. and you have to course correct. And, you know, so uh, that that's where your character gets revealed, right? Exactly. That's, you know, that's how you really find out who you are. Let's be honest. I mean, the last few years with COVID, mm -hmm. I think it's had a chance of, you know, revealing who we are as individuals, as mm -hmm. families, as a society, and also kind of do that, you know, 
gut check and kind of yeah. also practice again in my own life and with our own family, this philosophy of out of the bad comes the great. Okay. This is really bad, right? Mm-hmm. As I like to describe if someone were to model the COVID pandemic and describe it before it ever happened mm-hmm. and said, okay, here's what, here's what we've got. It's the whole world is going to shut down. Like literally no one, you would say to that person, okay, that's too extreme of an example. Like that's no one can believe that scenario. Come up with something a little different, right? The, fic- the fiction it. books wouldn't even write that. They're like, no, exactly no one right. that. It's like, okay. But the truth is what the world experienced and what happened, it, mm-hmm. it is like you can't actually come up with anything worse than basically what we were subjected to. Mm-hmm. When it, it was, as you said, it exposed all the weaknesses, right? It exposed everything that was weak and fragile in society. And then it was like, okay, well, what do we do about it? How do we, there's some people who navigated and had success and there's other folks who just hunkered in the bunker and just like, well, um, they, and I don't think they've still come out of it. And, and I think it's not a perfect um, example, but I think that for me in my own life, I said, okay, you know, I didn't necessarily choose this, but how can I make the best out of it for myself personally, for my family? And, you know, out of this bad, try and create some, some, some good, some greatness. And, mm-hmm. you know, many ways um, for my personal life, some of the choices that we made as a family, my business, um, actually, one of the things, speaking of um, our family moving from Connecticut, where we were living to now being here in Tennessee, um, has to do with the fact that what COVID made me realize is I had this idea um, that I needed to be near New York City where I grew up and, you know, the financial capital of the world. And COVID dispelled all that. For 18 months, I did not go into the new, into the city once. And not only was I happier not commuting back and forth with that, you know, call it three hours a day mm-hmm. um, the, of just mind-numbing pain, but also I actually did better financially by not wasting all that time and energy commuting back and forth. So I, I said to my wife, okay, we don't have to be here anymore. We know we can move. Let's now let's figure out where. I want, I want to double click on that conversation because when you're, you know, in a, a very nice area of Connecticut and close to the financial hub and uh, wall street and New York, and then all of a sudden you're, you find yourself in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I want to uh, understand the thought process because you could have gone anywhere in the world. Right. And so you you find yourself in Chattanooga and as as a guy who lives just about an hour and a half up the road from you in Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, my wife and I chose that move from, um, you know, the, the suburbs of Detroit, you know, probably a decade ago. And, you know, we absolutely love it here for a whole slew of reasons. But I want to I want to understand maybe some of your thought process there. But before we double click on that one, I want to I want to go back and uh, ask you a couple of probing questions on some of the things that you said previously. Now, for our listeners who don't know your background, you went from a very prestigious um, private school and that that rowing example, and went on to Brown University, and were on the rowing team at Brown. So that setback had a uh, maybe a little bit of a catapult to help you go on to a collegiate success, an NCAA athlete rowing for Brown in the Ivy League, which is a, a very spectacular. Um, so congratulations on that. It, it reminds me that, you know, tenacity is so important. I mean, there's multiple people in our program, classmates of ours that have a similar story to you. I'm thinking of one guy who uh, graduated from the university of Texas. He didn't have his MBA. He wanted to work for the Boston consulting group. And, you know, he flew up to Boston and literally sat in their lobby and said, I'm not leaving until you hire me. And they're like, dude, we're not hiring you. 
you have to have an MBA. And he's just like, I'm, I'm going to sit here and see. And finally they, you know, they, they hired him and it, it's a very prestigious job as you know, you, you well know, uh, but tenacity um, is so important. And what you showed there and, and your background is that, that, that tenacity. The other thing that I wanted to maybe get your insight on since you've spent time in Silicon Valley, uh, specifically in uh, venture capital, private equity businesses, I've heard from a number of people out there in the Valley that one of the things that they are looking at when they're looking at investing in a, a startup company or an entrepreneur, as they look through their resume, if it's a person who's never had a failure, they are a little bit skittish on hiring that individual because they're like, you're going to run into a brick wall. You're going to run into a failure. And if you've never had it before, how are you going to uh, adapt and overcome? Are you just going to wilt? Are you going to go sit in the corner and wet on yourself? Uh, and it, it could you could just literally burn all the capital we've invested in this business. We want to invest in someone who's literally gone through the fire, had those failures and come out the other side because we know that they've got character and integrity and intestinal fortitude to be able to make it work. Is Does that resonate with you? Have you heard some of those similar things there in the Valley? Absolutely. I think there's just, that is one of the truisms is that, you know, this idea, you don't necessarily want them to make uh, their first major mistake with your capital. Um, you know, similar to money managers, uh, you know, you want to see how they handle a down month, quarter, year, whatever the case may be, and what they learn from it, and how they uh, course correct Mm -hmm. So no doubt, I think that that's just so important. And, you know, speaking of athletics and competition and, you know, and failure, disappointment is losses, right? There's a reason why we keep score, right? Is, is, you know, somebody wins, somebody loses. It's part of life to try to deny that is um, going against, you know, all of history in many ways. And so I think to your exact point, um, this is why sports are so important and valuable and, you know, interesting enough, Montgomery Securities, where I ended up, you know, landing that job, uh, they originally started by only recruiting athletes. It wasn't about whether you had your MBA or not. It was athletes at least have the willingness and desire to win and compete and to wake up early and stay up later and train harder. And they were looking for that mindset when they were originally building the firm. In fact, the, the, the ad they put out was, are you, you know, a college level or, or, or athlete or greater um, interested in the securities industry? Mm -hmm. That's awesome. It's a similar hack I've, I've had in my career. I'm always on the lookout for athletes for what you uh, just mentioned. And early on, my, my very first CEO role when I came out of the military I disproportionately was looking for veterans. I wanted people who had served in the military, who had this uh, understanding of failure is not an option, where they had a uh, and the idea of the this esprit de corps, the unit is greater than the person, and a just fanatical um, buying into the mission. And so that that's been so. I, I echo those two sentences. Well, along those lines, there's a rowing expression: um, you can't stroke the boat from the bow. And the idea is that, you know, they describe rowing as, as the ultimate team sport and everybody has to be in sync. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, when you have somebody that's in a certain position that's trying to stroke the boat um, when they're, they're not actually in that role, right, it, it creates mayhem and, and chaos. And the same thing to your point about organizational structure and roles and responsibilities, right? You know, uh, the Bill Belichick line, do your job, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, 
And, and I think that's also another important thing is um, when it comes to you know, hiring somebody is also making sure that, that they're, they're the right fit. You know, hire slowly, fire quickly, uh, mm-hmm. I think is another important dynamic. Really take your time making sure that you've got the right person. And by the way, if you realize you made the mistake, fix it. Mm-hmm. And same with any of this. Is, you know, one of the things I, I think about in regards to lessons learned or mistakes um, Warren Buffett, it's not that he's never wrong. In fact, if you look, he, he, he's often been wrong over his career. But when he's wrong, he's barely wrong. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that he's gotten to is that, you know what, that was right. And he gets out quickly. But when he's right, he's hugely right, right? He owns positions for decades. Yeah. And that, that's really sorry. To the same point, like, don't trust anybody that says they don't make mistakes or they're never wrong. If anything, run away from that individual, right? Because that's delusional. So when you use that, that's really interesting that you shared that because I, I did not have that insight. And so when you said he's when he's wrong, he's barely wrong. And the way you were quantifying him being barely wrong was he uh, had insight. That's like, you know what? I made a wrong bet, I made a wrong error. And I got out of it quickly. So he was moving. He, it was speed of thought, speed of being able to pivot his decision making. And he wasn't trying to double down. Exactly. Like, well, I'm going to try to force this and make it a winner. It's like, no, wrong, wrong decision. I'm getting out quick. Right. Yep. Yep. Take, take the hit. Um, don't, you know, try to fight, a, uh, fight reality. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the, whatever the position might be, is just telling you something. Listen. Well, that's, that's very insightful. I want to spend some time thinking about that because there's, <laughs> that is really, really insightful. Uh, of course, one of his uh, biggest long positions for a very long time has been Apple. I think he's one of the largest shareholders of Apple and he has done quite well with that. Uh, well, uh, but case in point, he came late to Apple, right? Mm-hmm. Um, admittedly, like he, it was technology. He wanted, you know, to study it. Um, so on the one hand, he didn't say, oh, I've missed the boat, right? I'm too late to this one. Mm-hmm. But when he kind of got to the point where he said, you know what, this does make sense within my portfolio. Then he became the largest shareholder uh, of the company. Nice. Well, let's, let's, let's circle back around to the, the conversation we we're having here just a second ago about your decision to leave Connecticut and the, uh, the great city of New York to come down South to, jo- to join me in the, the wonderful South. And uh, your new home is in uh, Chattanooga and I want to hear a little bit about that. What, what made you uh, decide Chattanooga was the place to be? And where were maybe some of the other places you guys were considering? And you've been down here now for what, about a year, year and a uh, half? 14 months. Yeah, we moved a year ago, August. Um, so it's been you know, 14 months. You know, it started with, as I mentioned, like this realization that we didn't need to be there anymore. That, you know, because of Zoom and the ability to work remotely, um, that that was the first eye opener. I said to my wife, okay, we can move. And then I said, but but my only requirement for us as a family is to move somewhere with no state income taxes, zero, not some, none. Interestingly enough, Connecticut did not have a state income tax until the early 90s, 1990s. And they said it was going to be temporary, right? Oh, it's just going to be a temporary state income tax. There's no such thing as a temporary tax. And taxes, once they exist, they only go in one direction, which is up. So for me, with the idea of uh, having choice in the matter, I said to my wife, like, not some, none. So that narrows it down. So six states uh, that have zero state income taxes. The other thing, though, 
coming from a community like Greenwich, Connecticut, beautiful community, don't get me wrong, but we didn't want to trade uh, what I call the the keeping up with the Joneses lifestyle of, of Greenwich for uh, keeping up with the Joneses lifestyle of Palm Beach, as an example, mm. so Florida, yep. or I would put in some ways Austin, Texas in, in that mm. category. And so I was uh, having an exchange with a friend of mine that I grew up with. We literally went to grade school and boarding school together. So we've known each other for most of our lives. And he said, go check out Chattanooga, Tennessee. And specifically, um, the school Baylor, mm. uh, right? The, which the high school here from grade six to 12. And first of all, I have to tell you about, I wouldn't have been able to have found Chattanooga on a map and being very candid about that. Um, I had no idea where it was. And then I looked it up and started doing research and it was voted best small town in America twice by outside magazine. And, mm. you know, we love, we're an outdoor hiking family. So that resonated with me. And then, we came down and visited and we just fell in love with the place. And it was all the things that we were looking for. Great quality of life, low costs of living, great schools, um, no state income taxes, abundant access to fresh water, uh, you know, low cost of, of energy. Uh, you know, just all like if you actually add up all the boxes that I, that you would be looking for in a place, you'd be hard pressed to find somewhere better than Tennessee in general and Chattanooga specifically. And so it was literally heard about it in June of 2021, visited it in July for a week, got an Airbnb, moved middle of August because our older daughter was about to start uh, literally kindergarten at, at, at um, a school uh, called Greenwich Academy. And I said to my wife, if she starts, we'll never be able to leave because she's going to believe that she has you know friends. And I said, you know, we have to leave when this is still a dictatorship, when we still make the decisions. <laughs> Um, and you know, look, we can always move or, you know, kind of like, or move back or move somewhere else, but we got to just go. So by middle of August, uh, we, we backed up the car and moved down here and, and, and never looked back. And, and it's been everything we'd, we hoped for, uh, in, in all those areas that I mentioned to you. Well, you, you mentioned so many of the things that Brandy and I were taking into consideration a decade ago. Uh, and again, we're in Knoxville, just a, a little bit up the road from you, but they're in uh, Chattanooga. I mean, I, I believe the uh, the Koch family got their start there. A lot of a background is a lot of great technology and uh, industry there in the local area. Uh, here in East Tennessee, the thing that we uh, love, I mean, it's just some great schools. Uh, we love the fact that we're kind of positioned you know, nicely on the eastern seaboard with I-75 going north and south and then 40 going east and west. So it feels like we can get anywhere within a day's drive, um, you know, not too far from Nashville, not too far from Atlanta. Um, you know, some of the, the greatest uh, national uh, parks, you know, great Smoky Mountain National Forest and Park there in the, just 30 minutes from us. So uh, we, we've absolutely fallen in love with it. We've thought about leaving, you know, multiple times, be like, OK, well, where are we going to go? And we start doing the you know pros and cons. And we just for us, we can't figure out a, a place that we'd rather be. So. I echo those exact sentiments is that, you know, my wife and I, before we moved and even now that we're down here, we kind of challenge ourselves at times, you know, if not here, where, and we're hard pressed to come up with anything that has all the dynamics that, you know, that, that a place like Chattanooga offers. So we're, we're particularly uh, bullish on, on, on this place and this part of the world and everything it represents. One of the things that I want to, ask you about is how you're raising your daughters because so you made this decision in large part uh for your family 
And I would say that one of the things I've really grown to respect about you over the the, the number of years that we've uh, been friends and uh, classmates, um, we've got you know wonderful uh, men and women in our program that are very committed, you know, husbands and uh, mothers and fathers and you know and and just lo- love their kids right and take care of their family. But I would say of all the folks that I have, um, you know been able to spend time with in our program. I can't think of anybody who is more intentional about being a father than you. You you have that dialed in. Um, Like you set the standard of of what it is to be a father who is intentional and and, and intentional in how you are raising your daughters, how you're educating your daughters, um, the life that you're kind of giving them and not the easy life, but raising them up to be great American citizens, uh, to be able to do good in the world. And so I just want to help me, you know, unpack some of those things that like right now, you as a father, what are the things I'm a father of six. So give me some coach me up, mentor me (laughs) things that, you know, I can be doing um, that you say, Hey, Bob, I found this to be, you know, extremely incredible and valuable for, for me. This is how I'm thinking about this, but I'd just like to learn from you and and how you see the world and what you're doing. Oh, First of all, thank you for those thoughtful comments, and I feel the same about you and you know your role model to me in regards to uh, how I've seen you with your family. So thank you. Uh, you know, really to be a lot more specific on the last few years and our and, and part and parcel of our move, um, the final straw. So like I said, it wasn't it wasn't this one thing, but in Connecticut was that they used the state of Connecticut used COVID and the pandemic. Uh, to pass a very controversial law that allows the state of Connecticut to force vaccinate children against the wishes of parents. Now, um, that just, for my wife and I, we were absolutely on the same page. There's just nothing right about that. Um, and that was the final straw. Again, as I mentioned, cost of living, taxes, you know, politics. We were wrestling for some time, but the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the straw that broke the camel's back was, was the fact that they did that. Um, and we just said, nope, we're, we're not going to subject ourselves to, you know, such uh, tyranny. Uh, absolutely. And that's the thing. I mean, the beauty of living in the United States and uh, federalism is you, know, you have the ability to vote with your feet and to move. And, you know, so besides the fact that, um, again, my short list of no state income taxes, but but Tennessee as well has a very much, you know, my Tennessee license plate has the famous don't tread on me, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Um, statement, which I fundamentally, you know, adhere to, um, you know, which is, hey, one of the things I say to my girls is free to be you, free to be me. When you're, you know, going about your day and your dynamic, um, if something's going on that, you know, someone's doing something, you're like, hey, as long as they're not infringing on your right, your ability, your happiness, you know, let them do what they're going to do. You do what you want to do. And so my point to this is whether it's the controversy behind vaccines or masks um, or where you can or cannot go, you know, my thought is, hey, to each their own, free to be mm-hmm. you, free to be me. And mm-hmm. that decision does not rest with the state or the federal government, as far as I'm concerned. It is ultimately the responsibility of that parent with their family and their children. And again, I don't but if, if a parent wants to have their child vaccinated, that is their choice, their prerogative. It is their child. Um, just that it is my choice, my prerogative, my child. So, um, you know, when I think about one of the lessons trying to instill with my girls is 
making sure they understand and appreciate that part of the reason why we left is because we did not want to subject ourselves to rules that we did not feel um, made sense. And certainly uh, in hindsight, you know, now looking at what's happening, you know, there's uh, all these uh, individuals that are asking for amnesty for uh, all the draconian measures they tried to implement. And, oh, we didn't know better. No, actually, you did know better. Um, and you really tried to use it to, unfortunately, uh, change society for the worse. So I, I hope that my girls, to the extent that they could look at their parents and take um, some educational value from that decision and that move and realize that that was part of what we did is, hey, you know, make your own decisions in this world. You decide your, you know, where you want to be and what you want to do and who you want to surround yourself with uh, for hopefully all the right reasons, right? Don't do anything because someone else tells you to do it. Do it because it feels right to you and, you know, feel good about it. Yeah, well, you, you had mentioned a, a few moments ago that uh, taxes, once a new tax gets enacted, there's only one direction. It never stops. It only goes up. And I would say that that is a, um, um, it's a similar to everything the government does. When the government, you know, enacts a power or takes a power or takes a position, very rarely does it ever get unwind, uh, un unwound. Um, and that was, a, I think, a bit of my concern when I started seeing some of the things that were happening, you know, through COVID. I was like, uh-oh, uh, once we go down, this is a slippery slope. We go down this path, uh, I don't, I don't know if we, you know, it's going to be really hard to go back from this. These are precedents that are being set. And, you know, so when a, a state enacts a law, that just says, Hey, we can vaccinate your child without your consent. Where, where, else, where does that lead now, now? Where else does that go? That, that it's, it's, it's very uh, disconcerting for me. And uh, I'm hopeful that with all the information that's coming out, there can be, you know, logical, thoughtful dialogue and debate, and we can have reason now uh that we are have removed this the, the cloud of you know fear and paranoia and, and things like that we can have reason dialogue on these issues absolutely you would hope so um for sure uh you know i think that you know, if it, if there's a silver lining that's come out from all this it's hopefully that people are more awake and aware of taking you know personal responsibility for their health and their actions and their choices you know, ancient enough, I got into a little bit of a debate with um, Henley's school down here because last year we came here and they they were requiring masks. And I was, you know, kind of having an exchange with the head of the school saying, but don't you realize that if you're saying that your mask only works because my daughter is masked, then you've already proven my point um, that it's all just theater and, you know, signaling. And, you know, again, if you actually look at the data, uh, for COVID particle and the size of it, masks are totally useless um, and they just don't work. Um, and so I think hopefully that's one of the things that people are recognizing. Hey, you you want to wear that mask? You believe in that mask? Go for it. But the idea that your mask only works because I'm masked is ridiculous. And same, you know, the idea is, is we, we've discussed that these vaccines are safe and effective when they weren't properly tested and have clearly proven to be the opposite of that. Uh, and again, if as they were selling them early on, hey, they stop transmission, right? Okay, well, if you're vaccinated and you believe they're safe and effective and stop transmission, which none of which ended up being great, but if you believe that, great. But the fact that you're saying I have to be forced to do it myself for yours to work, once again, you've just proven that I'm right. Right. 
unfortunately. So true. Well, there's a lot, there's a lot of uh, great data and science that is coming out. And I think there's going to be some uh, very interesting uh, conversations on this subject. And I'm, I'm looking forward to it happening. And hopefully, we as a country will get stronger uh, for these dialogues. And uh, American, I'm, I'm hopeful that the American people will uh, learn and be prepared. So the next time that we have a crisis like this, because I don't think it's, it, it's, it's not over, we're going to end up, there'll be something else. And hopefully that we, we've taken these learnings and we've become a stronger society, a better society. That's my, my hope and prayer. That might as well. I mean, look, I think part of it is this dynamic of we need to have a lot more debate in this country. We need to actually have the ability to go at the issues. Oftentimes, with most any issue these days, it becomes very political and controversial and hyper-partisan. And all of a sudden, there's no ability to dialogue anymore. You know, actually, one of the things from a political perspective is, is when you have um disagreement it, you know the, the the need to be able to work through it and come up with some type of compromise right it's important society you know in society it's important you know uh, individually is to be able to work things out and i think in many ways we've lost that uh and i hope we get it back let's talk about that in, in terms of losing it and how do we get it back because i've had so many conversations with uh friends business leaders on this various point um and one of the things that is interesting that it, I'd, I'd like to get your insight on who is forcing, because I, I, I feel like it, there's a manipulation to force America into these extreme poles. And when you're in that, that sector, that, that zone, it's, if you agree with me, you're on my team and I love you. And you, you can basically do anything and uh, you've got my support. But if you disagree with me, you're my enemy. And no matter what you say, no matter what you do, I am going to come after you. I'm going to try to cancel you. I'm going to try to diminish you. Um, but there's literally zero overlapping or zone of, hey, let's talk. Let's dialogue. I think this way. You think that way. Where where do we have commonality? But it, it feels like this is there's a concerted effort by some thing or people to really push America to its poles. And I've, I've constantly been a believer. I was like, you and I've seen this in our program. We have we have classmates of ours that have um, very different opinions than you and I do on maybe a particular subject. But when we sit in the classroom, we sit together and we talk and over you know dinner or a glass of wine, uh, we as Americans, I believe, have far more in common than we have differences. And yeah. you know, yeah. I, I can there, there's classmates of ours that I consider dear brothers, right? That I would you know uh, do anything for, and they they. They view the world you know, quite a bit differently than I do, but we're able to have these conversations. And, you know, why is that not happening? Well, you and I, I want to hear your, your well, perspective. Well, you, you, so you know me well enough that I always try to bring a movie into uh, a dynamic and a dialogue. And one of my favorite scenes in a movie is the scene in Jerry Maguire uh, where Cuba Gooding Jr. says to him, you feel like we're, you know, fighting and arguing and I feel like we're finally communicating. And mm -hmm. to me, I, you know, I use that moment that seems like that it's important and healthy to have disagreement, to be able to argue with one another, um, but not to the point where you no longer are willing to listen to the other side and understand and appreciate, you know, where they're coming from. And, you know, uh, and so my 
sense of your, your you know, why, why things have gotten so bad is obviously because of the rise of social media and, and you know, exacerbating, you know, these um, ability to to say things online that you probably wouldn't say in front of somebody mm-hmm. and the bullying. Right. And um, and also, again, these various algorithms that that really force um, the conversation into really extreme places. And, mm-hmm. you know, the reality is most people are in the middle. That's the truth. This is, we're really fighting a loop, but but with the loudest voices are on the polar extremes, right? Is mm-hmm. take take the absolute worst or harshest uh, point possible and and use that. So, um, I look piece of point. I went to Brown University, but I'm one of the you know truly few conservatives to have come out of that school. In my opinion, um, you know, I remember back in the day. I had a Bush sticker on my board. It was a George Bush Senior, uh, 40, 41. And I had, and you know, oftentimes I'd come back or I'd be in my room and people were trying to de- deface it. And I'd open up the door. I'd be like, you know, what's wrong with you? You, you don't believe in free speech? You, you don't believe in, you know, the, the the rights to, you know, opinion? And and they, you know, oftentimes they'd be they'd be embarrassed, right, by by their actions. And oh yeah, I I, I actually do believe in that. Or at least I think I believe in that. No, that was 30 plus years ago. Um, I really don't believe I I could, you know, you could have a Trump sticker on a on a door at Brown um and not pay the price for it, unfortunately, right? Because it's it's gotten so toxic and you'd get your, you would get kicked out. I think you would literally that this that this person's, you know, um it made me feel unhappy and that they'd have a whole bunch of people in the corner in their safe space and they'd be like, kick this and, guy. And, and and that's right. And it's unfortunate, it's tragic, and 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 we're good. We need the ability to if you know, I, you either believe in in you know diversity and inclusion, or you don't, right? If if the boy is well, well, we only believe in diversity if it's if it's the same opinions, right? As long as the same opinions, then that's okay. Right? Yeah. Um, and then where's the diversity there? <laughs> exactly, and you know that's where I lament because you know I remember as a history concentrator at Brown. You know, having really awesome debates, like, hey, let's get into it, let's discuss. The Civil War, and let's discuss, you know, the Iraq War back in the time. This was early nineties, mm-hmm. right, nineteen nineties, and the controversy swirling around, you know, the first Iraq War with with George, and whether or not it made sense, and you know, what were what were the reasons and the motivations. So, I I hope that we have, you know, again, the the optimist in me would like to believe that this idea of of you know, free speech is only free if it's actually you know not um, censored. Like it actually has to offend you right like mm-hmm. ultimately that's what makes it free is that it, it it has the ability to to get you upset well that's where i mean the aclu back in the day originally got some of its start I mean, they were like i mean think about it. We're, we're right after world war ii the heinous things that had happened in in, in hitler's germany the aclu it was fighting to allow nazis to march i believe it was somewhere in wisconsin maybe what milwaukee yes Madison. yes and they're like, no, you've got to allow, as, as despicable as it is, as we don't like it, but free speech in this country, you have to allow um, different people to express their points of view. And they fought for it. Um, I don't think the ACLU today would be fighting to allow that to happen. And yes. you and I both agree. What happened in Hitler's Germany was horrendous and awful. Um, but you, as soon as you go down that slippery slope and you have somebody who has the power to say, this person can't talk, this person can't talk, burn this book, uh, it leads to a bad place. And if the wrong person gets in power, that's how, 
hello, that's how Hitler took over Germany, right? Yes, yes, that's exactly right. You know, the idea, of, to your point of the ACLU, is is this dynamic of, hey, I may not agree with what you have to say, but I will defend your right to say it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you, know, you again, you either, speech is either free or it's not. There's mm-hmm. there's no middle ground where it, it, it just has to be, you know, that's why it's the First Amendment, you know, free speech. Uh, it's because of its importance. Well, I, I want to uh, pull this back into the boardroom because I've heard a, a a conversation here recently by another uh, thought leader, uh, oddly enough, out in Silicon Valley, who was talking about uh, groupthink in some of these tech companies. And uh, his comment was, um, you need to have healthy debate and dialogue and differing opinions in boardrooms. If, you're, if your board is just uh, everybody is agreeing. And, and he goes, you need to have, you know, healthy arguments and disagreements as you're flushing out these ideas. Um, and so here, here you are, we're talking about it in politics. We're talking about it in society. You're talking about how you are training up your daughters to uh, be free thinkers and to invite these conversations, because this is how you learn. This is where iron sharpens iron. Like, I want to understand different points of view. Pull this into uh, a business context. Uh, as you are uh, leading a company, as you're building boards for for your particular companies, uh, do you find that healthy dialogue and debate uh, as critical there? Um, and where have you seen like so? Can you could you juxtapose uh, maybe business arrangements where you've said here's an example of where it went off the rails, where it wasn't healthy, and here's an example of how you know these guys, you know, men, women, you know, kind of argued and debated and they they flushed out the best idea for their business. Yeah, so a lot to unpack, but one of my uh, favorite business books that I read a long time ago is called Blueprint to a Billion. And the author studied all the publicly traded companies that have achieved at least a billion in revenues, right. um, not market cap, revenues. And that, that's actually a very high hurdle, a billion in revenues. And mm-hmm. interesting enough, the data set is only a few hundred publicly traded companies. Uh, you know, this was a little while ago, but still, it's not as big of a data set. And then he identified what are the attributes that all these companies have in common, whether it's Home Depot, Coca-Cola, Microsoft. Um, and the I think it was the six or seven criteria one of the criteria was a really robust independent board. The board has to be exactly to your point. It has to be, it can't be a bunch of cronies that just rubber stamp whatever the, the chairman and CEO wants. Uh, you know, it has to be a, a, a dynamic board that's not afraid to speak up. Um, you know, the other attribute besides that is that your customers also have to be part of your your sales force. They're telling you, hey, you got to try this great product, this Microsoft Windows or you know Coca-Cola or Nike shoes, whatever the case may be. But your customers are your big evangelists was another one. But you know, to the point of uh board and it, one of the lines I remember or jokes about Hollywood is where one Hollywood agent says to a, another Hollywood agent, hey, did you read that script? You know, what did you think of it? He's like, I don't know, I'm the only one that's read it. And I think that so much of, of what happens this is this dynamic of no one really knows what to think about something unless and until someone else tells them what to think. And I think this dynamic is at work not only in the private, you know, 
world of business, but obviously in politics and healthcare, you know, is oftentimes we only know what to think because someone has basically spoon fed it to us. And that's one of the things when you look at, you know, companies like WeWork mm. uh, as from a business example, oh my God, it's the most amazing company ever. They're taking over the world. It's a technology company. Now I have an office leasing business in New York, uh, you know, very similar business. We rent out office space. And I kept looking at WeWork and I said, look, this is a joke. And this thing is going to blow up spectacularly. And I don't care what Masa at SoftBank says, you know. Um, the guy's kind of a madman and, you know, writing $20 billion on a napkin or his iPad and handing it, uh, you know, is emblematic of that. Uh, so at the time when I was kind of being outspoken, probably people looked at me and said, oh, you know, just sour grapes. Right? You've got a similar business, but it's not valued nearly as much. They're like, no, I actually know what it takes and what the business margins are like. And I just know that this isn't going to end well. Yeah, it's a fascinating uh, that story in of itself is a uh, is so fascinating, and I'm sure you've seen the uh, what is it the, the documentary or the, uh, the yeah yeah series what was it on Netflix um, or on Apple Apple, or, or Apple, uh, Apple. Yeah. we crashed I think we yes. crashed oh my gosh it's so many incredible business insights you know packed into that a little uh, mini series there, but. Well, it, it also highlights that people are afraid to speak their opinion. That that that's that joke of yours about Hollywood and be like, I don't want to, I don't know what to think about it. It's like you yeah. have an opinion, share your opinion. But people are so like they, they want to be right. They want to make sure that um, the right people agree with them. And they have it builds validity. It's like, well, I want to make sure all these other people say it's good. Then I'll say it's good. I feel like I'm on the winning side. People like we've trained society to be so uh, fearful of giving it an opinion that it goes against the consensus consensus narrative. That's, you know, and that goes back to my, you know, quote to my girls, free to be you, free to be me. So the whole idea is, look, have an opinion that may be not the most popular or, you know, that's the accepted view, as long as you fundamentally believe in, mm -hmm. in that. You know, that's the real dynamic is, um, you know, make sure that what you're, focusing from a belief perspective, whether it's making an investment in a company or even joining a company for that matter, to go work for a company that it resonates with you, um, you know, that you actually literally feel, you feel positive and good about, you know, that uh, feeling and experience and, you know, culture. We talk, you and we talk about this uh, in one of the things I tell people all the time is that line, um, culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? Is at the end of the day, you know, you really look at the culture. Now, for example, looking at WeWork, the culture was rotten to the core, right? And it, it had right from the top, Adam Newman was, you know, doing shots in his office and just a madman, um, you know, and they paint that as like, oh, he's so charismatic and this is why this company is so valuable. Like, no, he's actually not personally someone that I'd want to give money to because mm -hmm. I don't necessarily trust that ethos. Right. Well, he, he did a great job of burning billions of dollars. It'll be interesting to see what he does on his, uh, you know, he's, he's coming back and acting. Yeah, we'll yeah see I'm enormously you, you know. skeptical, but yeah. we'll see. Maybe he, he learned a lot from it. I, I want to talk a little bit about your businesses and where you're investing and some of these really cool projects. But before we do, I'd be, I'd be remiss if I moved off this particular topic without asking you, how are you... Uh, what, how are you training your daughters, educating your daughters, encouraging your daughters at, at, at a young age to have the, the courage 
to debate and dialogue and 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 hold uh, views that are that go against maybe consensus narrative. Are you because I have got young children myself, and I, I'm wanting them to uh, grow up and be free thinkers and be uh, you know productive members of society. And I think that for them to do that, they children have got to not fall into this group think and just like just go along with the flow. They're going to have to be able to buck some trends and say, actually, maybe I disagree with that. And here's my thought. Here's my opinion. And, you know, as a father of four daughters, and I know you're a girl dad, it's I think it's really important to teach our girls how to to be strong, to, um, to stand up for themselves, to speak their mind. You know, are, are there any, is there anything that you're doing? I mean, do you have them in like debate class or I'm just I mean, anything? I'm just I'm, I'm, well, I'm sitting here taking a selfishly. I'm asking this question. Uh, me, I'm taking notes. You know, certainly we we encourage, um, you know, the spirited discussion and dialogue. But I'll tell you, interesting enough, one of the things um, after I stopped rowing, I got into was was martial arts. Uh, specifically a form of karate. And mm-hmm. interesting enough, I, I view it as I went from the ultimate team sport to a pretty individualistic pursuit. Uh, but the discipline involved and the mindset and you know the um, lessons learned from it. So uh, recently with our seven-year-old daughter, Henley, we started going on weekends to a karate instructor here in Chattanooga. And interesting enough, while you know, I think it's important to play sports, as I mentioned, um, right now, I think just the dynamic of what she's learning from a pursuit like martial arts, like karate, uh, it's really valuable for self-esteem, confidence. Um, and you know, it's not one of the fascinating things about that world. If anybody's teaching you how to actually, um, strike somebody, uh, it's the wrong teacher. Because true martial arts and karate and you know all these various forms historically have been defensive, is you never strike the first blow. Mm-hmm. It's the opposite. It's if somebody goes to strike you, you actually know what to do to defend yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think that in many ways, that's such an important lesson in life is you don't want to cause harm or offense necessarily. Mm-hmm. But if someone's trying to hurt you or harm you, um, you know, Henley has some girls in her class, you know, girls can be tough, obviously boys, but girls can just be just as much of bullies as, as boys can, maybe more so. Mm-hmm. And so she's had some interesting moments with some girls in her classes. And, you know, so part of it is we said, well, what can we do to empower her? So we've got the idea of, well, let's go, you know, teach her some karate. And again, we don't want her to use it, proactively, but rather just awareness uh, reactively. And inch enough, she loves it. She's really, no, that's another thing is, you know, it's important that she takes to it. Um, and at a certain point, if she doesn't take to it, we'll maybe course adjust, figure something else out. We certainly don't want to force it upon her if it's not something that she looks forward to doing. But um, I do think, you know, if, as she's maturing, um, and it's, you know, if there's these other girls when we go there on Saturday, uh, they're in their teens, these sisters, mm-hmm. uh, and they're both black belts. And Henley just loves watching them, right? And that's amazing to see. And she talks about someday being a black belt as well. And you know, one of the things I tell her in that regard is, you know, it's the it's the journey, it's the process, it's the discipline. And if you stick with it, yes, that will be one of the 
rewards hopefully you'll receive is that that honor of having that black belt but it's more than that um yeah. you know the, the the shining star rather than an actual fixed destination well you're about the third or fourth person who's told me that they they're getting their daughters into um martial arts and so i think that that's finally straw that broke the camel's back i think my, my kids are now gonna um be, be, finally convinced me. So I'm going to, I'm going to go down that path as well. It sounds like a, a great pursuit, you know, to highlight your quote about being a person, um, you know, that's trained and defensive and to be strong. You know, I, I think we've had, um, this false narrative in society that we need weak people, weak men. Um, and I, I heard the quote recently that it's like, a, a, the, the dangerous person in society is not a strong man or a strong person. You want people to be strong, but constrained, to be controlled, to be um, to have that ability kind of uh, in reserve when needed. What's really dangerous in society is weak people. Yes, in, insecurity. People, yes, insecure, weak, unconfident, because when they rise, they'll, they'll find themselves in positions of power, positions of authority, and then this deep need that's never been satiated, that, that this insecurity, this weakness, they will use power and use things in society to very, very bad ends. Yeah. And, you know, also one of the dynamics of learning a skill set like martial arts is um, falling a lot, right? It's part mm -hmm. of the training. This is actually you're being trained to, to fall and get back up. And, mm -hmm. and that's a really important lesson. Um, as you highlighted at the beginning. Absolutely. Well, let's let's talk about some of the interesting businesses that you're in. I'm, as we're sitting here recording this over Zoom, I see this incredible backdrop. And I want to uh, hear a little bit about the uh, all these incredible projects that you have. You're involved in um, you know, soccer programs and uh, so forth. But the, the one I really want to dive into first, and I'll let you take it wherever you want to go, because I want to and this is maybe where you can unpack some of the, the things that you've learned in your career and the things that you and the businesses that you enjoy investing in. What brings you to a place where like, I really want to get behind this business. But uh, you and I this past year were uh, sitting by the pool down in the Florida Keys and uh, we we're just having a great conversation. And, and I, I remember you saying, hey, do you want to I'm invested in this this company. It's this non-alcoholic beer company. And I, I, they've got some here at the at the resort that we're at. You know, let me get you one. And I, I'll tell you, honestly, when you were sharing this with me, I was like, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> Grant's my friend and I'll, I'll try the beer. But here's been my um, my experience with non-alcoholic beers. It, it They all taste like um, somebody just poured water into an ashtray. And you, <laughs> they're just disgusting, right? They don't they, like yes. And I, I don't like it. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll take a sip of this thing. And you, so you poured this out of this beautiful can and into this into this cup. And I took a sip of it. I'm like, say what? This absolutely tastes amazing. A phenomenal, you know, non-alcoholic beer. As we we're sitting there, by, I was like, this this can't be real. And um, I, I believe it's Best Day Brewing, and it was a phenomenally tasting non-alcoholic beer. So tell me a little bit about this, how you got involved. But that it is, a, I can't wait. Um, to hear a little bit about the the origin story of this. Yeah, so thank you. Um, well, you know, first of all, with non-alcohol beer, it starts uh, almost nine years ago when I made the very personal decision to stop drinking in my own life. And candidly, I was drinking too much and I um, realized and recognized it. And my um, 
efforts and goals to cut back weren't working. Mm -hmm. And finally, you know, I said to myself enough already, um, if cutting back isn't working, let me cut it out. And as I like to describe, uh, the benefits that I personally received from cutting it out, uh, all of a sudden I slept better, my relationships were better, my business was better. There was not one area of my life that didn't improve. Mm -hmm. um, now, I like to point out to my brother-in-law, uh, who was really curious uh, about that decision, and he said, yeah, I can't believe you were able to stop drinking. And I, I point, I said, look, um, Arsenio, you're 27 years old. I'm, you know, I stopped at 44. You know, why don't you talk to me in 17 years and see how you feel about that type of a decision? Mm -hmm. um, but to the point of, um, you know, first and foremost, cutting it out um, and the benefits derived as an identical twin brother, you know, you know, my twin brother, um, he saw the impact on me. And then sure enough, he stopped drinking. And because he was looking at his identical, he's like, wow, look at look at all these positive changes in Grant's life. And then with our investment firm, Benevolent Capital, that we have together, um, what we really try to find are things that we believe in. So obviously, we believe in this category, but I completely agree with you that, you know, if you try most large, you know, non-alcoholic brands, it's awful. I like your example. It tastes like water in an ashtray. Um, but we tried, the first one we tried was athletic brewing. And that was a little over two years ago. And we were blown away by athletic brewing. Uh, and they are really the dominant player in this category. And we, we tracked down the CEO of athletic and we said, oh, please, you got to let Benevolent invest. And he blew us off. He didn't need our capital at the time. And, but we just kept pursuing and knocking on his door. And then he did a financing. Um, and he said, okay, I've got a little allocation uh, and you know, benevolent capital can have it. And we said, great, we'll take it. And I think it was two and a half million dollars. Uh, and then what we do, whether it's athletic brewing or, or a ring, any of our portfolio investments, what we do is we create a, a, a single purpose vehicle, a sole purpose vehicle, SPV around that investment opportunity. We invest our own personal family money into Every deal, usually it's um, you know the largest amount. Not always, but usually you know considerable amount of our own money. And then we offer that to our extensive investor network uh, of individuals all over the world. And the other elements that we do, we don't charge any management fees whatsoever. Um, we're actively involved anyway, but we kind of feel that you know that there's cross purposes. If you charge a management fee in a scenario like that. There's an argument that because you're clipping those management fees year in, year out, you're not as motivated for a potential exit uh, because mm -hmm. you kind of get used to that toll booth. Mm -hmm. um, so we said, you know what? We're not going to charge management fees. And then the other thing we said is we're going to give any of the investors that come in on our investment opportunities a significant preferred return on their investment before we see anything. Um, lately, where we've standardized is that the investors need to see a 100% return on their investments before we see anything. Um, so the idea is that unless our investors really win on something that that you know they they participate, then we don't we don't participate ourselves. So we have to really be right. Kind of going back to that Warren Buffett analogy, you know, you run a captive venture capital fund or a private equity fund where it's just a pool of money that you're sitting on and that you can put to work on a discretionary basis, um, you can afford to be a little bit more wrong uh, in that dynamic, in that scenario, the portfolio effect, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, the idea that you know all it takes is one huge winner to make up for uh, 
losses. Mm -hmm. We don't have that per se with our structure where we're creating these specific SPVs um, for every opportunity. But with Athletic and then more recently, Best Day Brewing, what we did say to our extensive investors is if you try that beer, kind of like your experience firsthand, and you aren't blown away by it, absolutely blown away by it, like that it's one of the best tasting beers you've had, alcoholic or non-alcoholic, we would prefer you not to invest. We want you to have that same passion and fire in the belly about you know what we believe in. And, and that is um, really, truthfully, why uh, these have so far been, been so well received, um, is we get that sample in the first hand, they try it, they say, you know what, this is amazing. And I love it. And I want to be part of it. And, and going back to that blueprint to a billion where the customer is the best sales force, right? Where they're telling, Hey, you got to try this. It's amazing. Um, so the other thing we look for when we're exploring opportunities, one, we have to believe in it ourselves, like hugely believe in it. Two, we have to want to evangelize it to others, right? Like, mm -hmm. hey, give this a try. Like, so I'd say that, you know, for us, it's always has to go with that personal connection to something. So the you know, one that started it all off was Aura Ring, the sleep mm -hmm. tracking ring. My brother and I, at this point in our lives, the first thing we do in the morning when we wake up is we send our sleep scores to each other. It's kind of funny, nice. um, but, you know, we're, we're literally competitive about our sleep. So we had an opportunity to invest in Aura Ring. We believe in it ourselves. We think it's a you know life-changing product, uh, extremely beneficial. And so when we had a chance to invest, we we took it. And and same thing, you know, and then that led to athletic brewing, which then led to a fintech platform called Future Bank. So um in many ways, part of the intentionality of our portfolio or of our investment opportunities um, is that they come to us. We discover them, and then we decide, like, can we really get behind this? Um, and I would say that when we negotiate an allocation into something, mm -hmm. or in the case of uh, athletic brewing, when we're told, hey, there's two and a half million available, we're truthfully, you know, again, we're part of that mm -hmm. from an investment perspective, but we really don't know how it's going to go until our extensive investor network responds to it. Gotcha. Tell me a little bit about your decision to go so against the grain with how you set your company up because for so there i'm sure there will be a few listeners here then you're you're talking about hey we're you know this is what we're doing and you know we're not taking a management fee and we want to make sure that you know our investors are getting 100 percent back on their capital before you know we divvy up profits and, and distributions and so forth and take returns this is so like for people who don't understand the private equity or venture capital space i mean this is like such an outlier. Like, I, I don't know anybody else. I've literally never heard of anybody else who does this, right? Because it's all, it's always about the two and the 20, you know, you've got your carried interest and you, and you know, the, the folks who are running the firms, they're getting paid every single day, whether any investors are, are making money or not. Uh, so it just, it's, it doesn't shock me that you guys would come up with this because I know you and, and your brother and you're, you're just, you know, some of the just nicest, you know, high character, high integrity, everybody, we're going to make sure everybody wins uh, type of guys. Just how did you come up with this? For starters, uh, my twin brother, Brett, was running a family business or quasi family business with our father called Targus, the computer accessory company. Mm -hmm. And our father was chairman and CEO and Brett was president. And they had um, 
you know, over the years, they had two different private equity firms that were investors in the company. Uh, and, you know, one of the things about them is, again, they're clipping their two and 20 and they're getting paid their fees no matter what. And they didn't have their own personal skin in the game, right, because it's through mm-hmm. the fund itself. And so that, particularly for my twin brother, Brett, left left a bad taste in his mouth about that experience and about that relationship and that dynamic. Um, so that is part of it. But the other part of it, as I was saying, because we're not sitting on a captive discretionary fund where people are just entrusting us with their money to go out and you know, invest in a range of business opportunities, we're only as good as the deals that we find. Mm-hmm. And so we have to be really selective about what we find and what we believe what we believe in and you know and why. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where I said, you know, as part of setting this up, so look, truthfully, we we don't need the management fees to be motivated to be successful. We need to really just um put the chips on the table, believe in it ourselves, have our own money in it. And then do everything we can to make it hopefully as successful as possible, right? Within within control, right? There's only so much you can do. Um, and now I will tell you that that um, approach, that model, uh, our investors certainly uh, have taken to it. They they love the fact that we're not, you know, charging that that two percent per year. By the way, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So think about it. If you got a, you know, five year. Uh, Hold period, the first 10% they're, they're yeah. clipping is they're taking it for themselves. And as I mentioned, there's not as much of a desire for, for an exit. So, but um, I think to try to answer your question better, I would use the line necessity is the mother of invention, um, in the sense that, you know, it really started with uh, we got approached uh, with an opportunity to invest in Aura Ring. Mm-hmm. And we love Aura Ring personally, as I mentioned. And we knew we were going to invest ourselves. But then we said, well, we know others that we think would want to invest. Um, so we said, well, okay, this is a specific opportunity into a specific company at a specific round. And we have to move quickly, by the way. We, you know, we 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 didn't time was of the essence. And so that was another part of our motivations, like, hey, let's try to make this as easy as possible. And one way to make it easy is just take management fees off the table. It's not even part of the equation. Um, and so that's exactly what we did. And then, you know, quite honestly, it worked out so well with that one that that the next one that came into our wheelhouse was athletic brewing. Mm-hmm. And again, like we said, okay, we have this little allocation, two and a half million. We're in for part of it, yeah. but now let's go, let's go get the balance. So when we're having the conversations with potential investors, it's a lot easier when when our management fees are not part of the dynamic or the equation makes a lot of sense so what is um the the strategy then when when you're investing in a company I'd like to understand how you think and process about this what what are you looking for in the company what are you looking for when you're doing your due diligence with management um the leadership team um what are things that you take a look at and say boy this these are uh, green flags, you know, the, the, I like what I'm seeing and what would be potential red flags. You're like, eh, I don't know. Okay. I've got an uneasy feeling about this. We're, we're probably out. Yeah. So, you know, certainly, uh, from a sports perspective, teams win championships, right? Like first and foremost, it's gotta be the underlying product. Do we believe in it? Like Aura Ring, like Athletic Brew, like Best Day Brewing. Do we believe in the product? Yes. Okay, great. Now what's the team look like? 
because that's going to be the key to execution. Mm-hmm. Is this, you know, I think uh, I think it was Warren Buffett or maybe it was Jack Walsh who said, "I'd, I'd rather have an A team in a C industry than a C team in an A industry." And you know that ultimately to our conversation earlier about you know individuals that like to win, that like to compete, that have um, done it before. By the way, both they've had big exits, but also they've had failures. Right? All those things are really critical. Everybody knows their role. You have some, you know, rock star CFO as an example, rock star COO. Um, you hopefully have a great board. And if you don't have a great board, then let's help them build a great board. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in, with true independence. Um, so I would say, you know, starts with great product or products. Then it goes with great team. So if the great team is not there, it, it, then you got to help it get there. And then ultimately, I would say that from a diligence perspective, the thing that we look for uh, is the exit. And with everything in our portfolio, the exit for us has this dynamic where we expect somebody really big in the industry to buy this company, whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. And I like to say, and this goes to my you know, 30 plus years of banking and finance, that whomever that big player is, is they're saying to themselves, one, we have to buy this company because we really need this product. Mm-hmm. So I'll use Aura Ring as an example. Uh, ultimately, I believe Aura will get bought out by one of these major players like Apple, like Amazon, like Microsoft, like Google, one of these major giant players where they say to themselves, we have to buy it because we need it. We need this technology. We need these patents. We need these you know, customers. We need this data. I was going to say, where on that list is data? I was going to say, it's got to be pretty high on that list, right? But then they say to themselves, that the other reason why they have to buy it, the number two reason, is because they have to stop filling the blank competitor from getting it, mm-hmm. right? That Google says, we have to buy Aura before Apple buys Aura mm-hmm. or before Amazon buys it. And oftentimes, the price that they'll pay to acquire it is greater for reason number two to stop the competition than it is for reason number one, because they have to have it. Mm-hmm. Um, but for us, whether it's an athletic brewing or a best day brewing or a, or a ring as an example, um, ultimately, we feel that the real exit in our portfolio, what we look for, the dynamic involved, is that somebody huge says we have to have it and we have to stop somebody from getting it. And so that's another thing is if we don't feel that dynamic is at play. Now, by the way, we could be wrong about that and that's okay. Like Aura could end up being... Uh, independent forever, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, right. it's very successful independent, or ultimately they go public on their own um, and they're a successful IPO. Uh, so, you know, I might not be right about that dynamic, but I certainly feel that it's a you know it's 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 in play. And it's what makes the way you've set your firm up so exciting for an outside investor, because when they understand that. And they realize that you guys aren't doing the, the the traditional two and twenty and taking management fees off the top every single year. I mean, a hundred percent of your win is coming from the exit, and so you've got laser focus on. It's not just acquiring a great company at a great price. You could find that, but if there's no pathway for an exit in a certain time frame with a a viable um, 
competitor or a, a viable company that's going to come in and, and, and pay top dollar for it. It's like, nope, not us. And so as you guys are searching those things out, your investors know it's like, look, we are going to get an exit. The, the worst thing you can do as an investor is to invest in a company that becomes a zombie company and there's no exit. You're like, how do I get my money out of this? Right. Um, yes. So, well, and, and that goes to, if you're clipping that, 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 you know, quarterly fees, mm-hmm. you know, you, yeah, you can be a little complacent, right. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, um, you win, but your investors aren't right. right. You, they're stuck in something. And so that's where, um, you know, we're really focused on the exit in mind. And so I, I would say to your questions about our diligence and our methodology, and, you know, um, we're not going to out diligence the bigger players and firms. It's just a fact. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of it has to do with, uh, you know, the Malcolm Gladwell instinct and the gut and, you know, mm-hmm. 30 years of looking at deals and, and examining things and um, hopefully having a sense of, of what's right, what's wrong. It's usually way back when I, I had an investment company, this is in the nineties before I started benevolent capital. Um, it was called MG capital with my partner at the time, a guy named Marco. So it was Marco grant MG capital. And we had a unique opportunity to invest in this software company. And by partner at the time, Marco said, okay, well, Grant, uh, this is hugely safe, but we got to go to their offices and we got to go spend the day there and we got to interview everybody. Now, by the way, we were like the smallest of the smallest of the smallest investors possible. The other investors that were already in the deal uh, were GE Capital and Goldman Sachs um, and some of the biggest you know, global funds in the world. And I said to Marco, I said, Marco, the only thing we're going to do in regards to diligence is ask them where we're wiring the money. and." At first, you know, he was about to put up this big fight with me. And then he thought about it some more and he goes, you know what? You're right. <laughs> like, because the truth is we're not going to out diligence a team from Goldman Sachs and GE Capital. We're at the latest stage of this deal. We're getting kissed into this deal. By the way, is enough how and why we got kissed into that deal is that we had invested in another company that went completely belly up. And it just turns out that one of the board members of that company that went belly up was a board member of this company. And he just liked us and he felt bad. And he's like, hey, kind of threw us a bone. Like, hey, there's this other opportunity. Not sure if you want it, but here it is. And we said, all right, like, let's let's go for it. So, And that ended up being hugely successful. And it was a great lesson. Like, if I think if we had said, hey, can we come spend the day at your offices? And they would have been like, listen, you guys don't get it. <laughs> like, you're just yeah. being given a gift horse here. Right. Now, I see... So I want to maybe push back on that um, line of thinking ever so slightly. I want to, I want to hear how you would approach this because it literally just within the last, say, 14 days, I, I don't know when it was, but it was in the last two weeks, I heard, uh, was listening to a podcast. Uh, you know, I'm sure you know who Jason Calacanis is, you know, an angel investor out of uh, Silicon Valley. He's got a, a, a book. I think it's, you know, how I turned $100,000 into $100 million. He was one of the first investors in uber and he's got a whole bunch of these like unicorns that he was invested in and uh he was kind of giving a little bit of a play-by-play on how the run-up of these tech valuations specifically in silicon valley happened and where early investors kind of call it um i don't know uh, benchmark capital you know sequoia you know some of the big names that you would know that people like instantly has credibility they're these uh, initial investors. Then all of a sudden, these companies are doing round two, round three, 
and and that all of a sudden it's it's smaller firms and what he was saying is like these smaller firms didn't do their due diligence on these deals. They immediately saw it's like, hey, Sequoia's in this, uh, Benchmark Capital's in this. Oh my gosh! All right, we're in. He goes, I got deal sheets. Um, people were asking me to invest, and um, I was asking for diligence, and they weren't going to give me any diligence. And they're like, don't you know Sequoia's in this? And he's like, I know Sequoia's in, but I want to do my diligence. And they're like, we're not giving it to you. And so he's like, all right, I'm out. And so he said a, a whole bunch of smaller firms, you know, got in at super high valuations on some of these things. And it would come to find out the, you know, Sequoia didn't do diligence. Uh, Benchmark Capital didn't do diligence. And it was like, oh, well, I think one of the uh, the firms that he was, um, he was talking about the, the Theranos deal, right? That was one of the deals. Now, they didn't have institutional capital from Silicon Valley, but he was, you, you there's a few others that were like this. And he was like, oh my gosh, make sure you're doing your diligence. So I 100% agree with what you're saying that when you have a great you know, opportunity, you don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Say, hey, Goldman Sachs, they've done their diligence. We don't need to do it. But how do you protect yourself in a situation like that to make sure that Goldman Sachs actually did the diligence and that they just weren't you know, pencil whipping it and that you're getting you know, carried along um, with an assumption? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, great point. And I, I totally agree with you, even though I gave this example of, you know, this very specific moment in time. Mm -hmm. um, I, I absolutely support the thesis, like, be careful, just because mm -hmm. there, and it doesn't necessarily mean it right, using the WeWork example with SoftBank. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, but part of it was with this one, we got it, we were getting in really at the earliest stages okay. with these big players. Now, Round one. Gotcha. it was right for a while. Mm -hmm. And we were able to exit at a huge appreciation until it was no longer right. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then it was very wrong and the company's no longer around. So exactly. If you're coming in at that later stage, um, whether it's with WeWork as, as an example, um, you know, and you're looking not so much at what the company does or how they do it or, or the team, but you're looking at who else is at the table that is problematic. And that's where, that's where the, the train goes off the tracks. Absolutely. Uh, look, at this point and stage, all these decades later, uh, as I mentioned, for us, uh, we are no longer necessarily looking at who else is at the table. We're looking first and foremost, do we believe in the product itself, mm -hmm. right? Do we use it? Do we then, right? If you, if, that, if you don't have that, then there is no step number two. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then step number two is, you know, the, the, the team as we discussed. And, and then again, for us, step number three is not who else is at the table, who else is investing in it. Like, you know, are, are we right about it? Or who else has read the script? It's what's the potential exit here? It, 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 right? Who's, who would buy this and why? Mm -hmm. um, you know, so if we don't, if we're not checking those boxes along the way, um, you know, then the investment doesn't happen for us. But actually to, to this bigger point in story, um, not one mention of who else is in the deal for us. That That's not a factor. Right. I knew you'd have a, th a thoughtful answer in response to that. I just wanted to tease that out just in case anybody else had heard that ex at that podcast as well. Um, I had taken some notes on it. But I, I tell you what, I absolutely love your approach and how you've set it up. And I mean, I knew a little bit uh, about your business, but I actually learned I'm learning some things uh, today that uh, I wasn't even aware of. And so but it doesn't surprise me. It's just like, I love how you've been so intentional in designing this to where um, everybody is aligned. Um, it's just absolutely phenomenal. Now, look, I talked about it briefly at the very beginning, but you're standing behind 
or in front of uh, a really cool backdrop. And, you know, m- many of our listeners probably don't know that you're also involved and invested in professional soccer. So are you willing to, you know, uh, share a little bit of insight there and uh, what you're doing in the professional soccer leagues around the United States? And I guess not just here in the United States, but also in, uh, in Britain. Yeah. So this is a perfect segue to, uh, you know, tell you that at a certain point you need to invite my twin brother Brett on on this podcast because um he'll really give a great education on this but how we really divide things up is Brett runs the professional sports focused on soccer uh, portfolio and uh the real estate connected to that professional sports portfolio so the background uh, is showing uh, a rendering for a USL soccer stadium in Rhode Island where we are bringing uh, the only professional sports team for the state of Rhode Island because uh, they lost their uh, minor league baseball team, the Paw Sox, that had been there for, I think, 70 years. They moved and, uh, to Massachusetts. So it was a huge blow to the state. But when my brother heard that news, he immediately bought the rights to bring USL soccer to the state of Rhode Island. Uh, this is an opportunity zone project. So it's got very favorable tax advantages and considerations mm-hmm. to it. Um, and as a market, Rhode Island is an incredible soccer market. They're fanatics about soccer. Whenever there's a World Cup game, Rhode Island always ranks in the top 10 of media viewership. Oh, wow. for the, yeah, it's incredible. You wouldn't think so, but it's got a big Hispanic and Portuguese and Italian and African community uh, that are rabid soccer players. But how this all began, and again, just to delineate, Brett really runs the sports and real estate side of benevolent capital. Whereas uh, my sandbox is is called the private equity and venture capital side of the portfolio. We help each other, um, but I'm the captain of that ship. He's the captain of the the sports and real estate ship. So the portfolio at this point includes interest in a USL team in in Phoenix, Arizona called Phoenix Rising. I have a stake in an English Premier League team called Ipswich Town, a legendary team out of the UK uh, that people are particularly fanatical about. Um, and then a, a team in Denmark, a team in Australia, and then this team in Rhode Island. Uh, and one of the things about sports, as we've seen from the valuations from not only soccer teams, if you look at the mm-hmm. Chelsea deal, $5 billion, I think, for um, the, the, to acquire Chelsea. But, you know, NFL teams, ML, you know, Major League Baseball, NBA, mm-hmm. the valuations of sports teams have just gone through the roof. Part of that has to do with the fact that they offer non-correlated returns to the public equity market. So for capital, it's trying to figure out a way to diversify against you know, the, the, the risk of being in the public markets. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes, sports and sports-related investments offer that you know, non-correlated return, so the diversified portfolio of returns. Wow, that's incredible. Do, do you... Um... The principles apply for you. You guys are the captains of two different ships. You work together, but I mean, do you, do you see that the things that you've learned in your career, the the the, the principles for success, um, the things that you've just outlined here for us today, uh, are those um, identically applicable on the other side of the house, or are there things that it might be a little bit different? You're like, hey, on that side of the house with that business, you know, we need to be looking at X, Y, and Z. Well, what would be similar and what would be different? Yeah, great question. So for starters, um, Brett especially has been really passionate about soccer uh, Mm -hmm. from an early age. And he was one of those guys that would set his alarm for three in the morning to watch a game in Japan. But then as well, when I mentioned that he ran a 
quasi-family business called Targus. Uh, he ran more specifically for a period of time, he was president of the European operations and he was living in London. And as enough, you always had to have an American in that position, managing the Brits and the Italians and the French and the Germans, because basically they would work well with the American, but not if it were, you know, a Brit or an Italian, right? And one of the things my brother realized is when he'd have these, um, you know, sales dinners or, you know, and he'd have everybody coming in from all the various countries. If you really want to get them talking engaged, just mention World Cup soccer, right? And he would joke like, hey, I know you guys are aware that the Americans are going to win this year. Um, so who do you think is going to come in second, right? And that would get the whole table energized and going, you're crazy. And um, so it brings the team together. It's the, the, the glue that kind of held. Okay. You know, we can talk about um, this, this common passion right? and, mm-hmm. and the truth is the the rest of the world is so passionate about soccer you know mm-hmm. uh, football as it were and so that was another dynamic here that my brother so going back to if unless you're if you're not passionate about it don't do it mm-hmm. my brother is extremely passionate about soccer and he was watching the game at one point living in los angeles where he lives and he realized like okay as much as i'd love to invest and be part of a team there's no opportunity in los angeles right it was already taken Right. Um, but then he heard about that, that Phoenix was the largest market in the U.S. without a major league soccer team. And there was a smaller team there called Arizona United. And he invested into that team uh, as a stepping stone. And then he brought a syndicate of other investors in and then rebranded it Phoenix Rising. So it's it's got quite a story to it in regards to it. But, but again, it, it, if you're not passionate about it, it's a tough business. Now, the other thing is, while certainly uh, – Teams get bought all the time. This is much more of a longer term play. Um, you're really working with dynamics like what are the media rights and the media rights for soccer are continuing to grow exponentially. And then the other dynamic that takes place with USL soccer is there's trading rights where you can trade the players across leagues. across. So that's, that's exciting um, dynamic that exists there. Also, sports gambling is another thing that's really beginning to take off, you know, pretty dramatically as well. So that's another dynamic. So these are variables that are involved with these investments that are somewhat differentiated. Media, Mm -hmm. gambling, player trading. Um, So you really have to have much more of a longer term horizon with these types of investments. But as my brother points out, for those that are invested in, in our sports portfolio, there is nothing in the portfolio that you will be more excited about because you're actually able to watch the game, right? Get into it, right? Right. Um, Travel over to England and go, go go sit in the owner's box over there, and then it's the same thing here in the U.S. And live a little bit of that Ted Lasso moment, right, where you can be part of part. So, you know, that does go, I think, full circle to our conversation about you know, that so much of life is about competition and sports and winning and losing and the ups and downs. Actually, one of the things I tell my brother is you've got investments in so many teams. You actually just have to kind of be a little zen about whether or not they win or lose, right? Because you have very little control over it, right? Just enjoy the process and the journey. Has the Ted Lasso phenomenon and that 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 taking off has that helped at all? I would imagine it's got to have a, a, a little bit of juice be- behind all these investments and people getting interested in this, right? 
For sure. No, no doubt about it. I mean, let's be honest. You, you don't have an opportunity to invest in an NFL team or an MLB team. So to be able to invest into soccer, especially if you're passionate about it, is, is pretty cool. Uh, also, if you follow Ryan Reynolds and um, his, he bought a team called Wrexham and that's got its own show as well. So that, that's another, besides the success of Ted Lasso, that's another story yeah. that's out there that has gotten people excited about you know, these opportunities. Well, that's that's so cool. Well, I, I tell you what, it, it, like the uh, entire sports market is uh, growing very rapidly, and uh, admittedly, I don't understand um, a, a lot of the dynamics. I mean, I just recently you're the one who introduced me to pickleball when we were down in the Keys, and next next thing I know is I'm I'm reading Wall Street Journal. You got you know major league uh, basketball players buying pickleball teams. I'm like, hold on a second. There, there's major league pickleball teams. Are you kidding me? I'm like. And, uh, you know, Golden State Warriors are buying. I was like, I think Tom Brady, if I'm not mistaken, bought a pickleball team. I'm like, what? Uh, LeBron, Kim Kleischer is the tennis player. I think maybe the Williams sisters could be wrong about the Williams sisters. Mm-hmm. But absolutely, these these other sports personalities are investing into pickleball. Uh, I think it's one of the fastest growing sports, certainly in the U.S., if not the world. It's, as you and I well know, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's pretty easy to pick up as opposed to tennis uh as a comparable and uh the fact that you can get out there and and enjoy yourself and and sweat and get a good workout and it, you know it's got all those great things going for it and it's uh very enjoyable with a uh, best day brewing on the sidelines yeah that's exactly right <laughs> and yeah that that was another thing is that you know as part of our process with best day brewing is you know they they are the official uh non-alcoholic beer partner and sponsor of pickleball, which we thought was extremely cool and exactly makes sense. Like if you're going to be competing uh, and you want to enjoy yourself afterwards, best to have a best day, non-alcoholic beer than That's right. otherwise. So refreshing. Well, I'll tell you what, I want, I want to be respectful of your time. I know it's, uh, we are w- well over um, the what I told you we were going to be doing, but I just, just, I've been so fascinated to continue to ask you questions and you've got so much great information that you've shared with us today. I, I certainly want to get you back on the program and I'll definitely reach out to Brett and want to interview him to get his insights on the um, athletic side of the house. But I, mean, I can't believe how many topics we've discussed today from parenting and raising our daughters. And, you know, we've gone into politics, we've gone into business, you know, insights that you've learned, um, how you got in, involved in uh, this particular career field and um, maybe a final question. You've done a great job of highlighting books along the way, and I'm going to make sure all those are in the show notes. But um, if you had an opportunity right now to give a word of encouragement to the American people, right? Let's let's pretend that you were on, um, you know, an, a major cable news program this evening, and you were having an address, your State of the Union address, right? So Grant Johnson is addressing the American people. Um, what would your address be? What type of, what word of encouragement um, would you give folks? I've always found your insights to be very pithy. Um, I know you're a proud American and uh, you've got a a great background there with your family. So what would you say to the American people? Oh, thank you. This is a great question. So I have a great quote and line that I use with myself and my girls and pretty much anybody. And it goes like this. And I think it's so important uh, that, you know, when you think about life and how life works. So here it is. 
the line is good, better, best. Never let it rest until your good is your better and your better is your best. And, you know, one of the things I say to my daughter um, I say is, hey, no one's good at anything at first, right? Mm-hmm. Taking her Saturday martial arts class. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, you're not going to be good at it right away. That's not important. What matters is that you're going to get, if you stick with it, you're going to get good at it. And then mm-hmm. you're going to get better at it. And then hopefully you're going to be the best that you possibly can be. Um, but it's that journey and that process. And so, you know, with anything and everything, uh, I'd say that, you know, to the degree of something that I'm um, enjoying some some success at this point is because of actually all the times that I, I've, I've enjoyed some failure. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just, you know, get back up and again, you go through the motions and you get good, better, best. So my, my advice is, is um, you know, part of that idea is humility, right? And, and um, not believing that you know everything and being willing to be open uh, to learning um, mm-hmm. from others and, you know, from yourself. So hopefully that, that message can, uh, you know, I think we'd all be better if we took that approach to life, right? Good, better, best. I couldn't agree more. I just want to say thank you for your time today. Grant, you're, you've been a, a great friend. You've been an, an encourager in my life. Uh, I, I Many times I've, I've called you up and we, we, we've been chatting and um, you're just such a, a great supporter, a great encourager. Uh, I love the fact that I always get to learn from you. Uh, love the way that you live life. You're very intentional, not only about how you do business, but also as a husband, as a uh, father to your daughters. Um, I always walk away from our conversations uh, encouraged and uplifted and with pages full of notes. So I just want to say thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule uh, to share your words of wisdom for everybody who's uh, listening to this podcast. And I cannot wait to have you back on in the future. Thank you, Bob. What a pleasure. Absolutely. Today's episode was engineered by Mitch White with graphic and marketing by Tristan Dickey. Special thanks to our guest, Grant Johnson, for taking time to be with us. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or wherever you go to listen to great podcasts. If you like the show, please share it with a friend and give us a review. That is always appreciated. Thank you for spending time with us today, and we will be back next week with more.